We're going to be in Romans chapter 8 today. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse number 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit for to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he also he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly, waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For, when, for we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, 
who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father God, how we praise you for this wonderful chapter in your word. How we thank you that we've come to this. And I pray this morning. Lord, perhaps more fervently than I've ever prayed it, that you would fill me with your spirit that I might make this clear. And I pray today, Father, that we would all be filled with the spirit that we might hear and understand and receive the glorious truth of this passage of Scripture. Speak to us today. Lord, if there's even one here today who is struggling with any of these things, wondering about any of these things, vacillating about whether or not to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I pray today is the day. Lord, let nothing hinder anybody today. Let there be no distraction, I pray. Let no sin, no issue, no uh, anything stand in the way of us hearing what you have to say for us today and acting upon it. Lord, forgive me for anything that stands between me and you. Forgive me, Lord, for anything that would make me ineffective today and help me today to be filled with your spirit. May I be clear and accurate and practical. And I just give this to you and ask that you'd use it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we open our Bibles this morning and we find ourselves on hallowed ground. This particular passage that we have just read today is what some people have called the mountain peak of Scripture. The eighth chapter in Romans. James Montgomery Boyce is one of my favorite commentators. I quote from him a lot from up here. And in his commentary on this chapter, he calls it the greatest chapter in the Bible, the chapter contains 39 verses, 39 verses that begin with no condemnation and end with no separation. And in between, remind us that there is no defeat. What a glorious, glorious chapter this is. Now, remember where we were last time. We were in chapter seven. We finished up chapter seven. And in chapter seven, Paul was describing in excruciating detail the struggles that he had with sin. I read an excerpt from a sermon online as I was preparing this. And this particular preacher, I don't even remember who it was. He called Romans 7 and 8 the agony and the ecstasy. Because in Romans chapter 7, we see Paul describing the agony of our struggle with sin. And in Romans chapter 8, we see the ecstasy of recognizing its defeat in our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 7 describes the futility of trying to live for God on our own. Simply can't do it. And chapter 8 describes the wonder and the glory of living for God in the energy and power of the Holy Spirit of God that we have in Christ. Now, we may be in this chapter for a few weeks. I don't know. Some of the chapters in Romans we've clobbered in one fell swoop. 
others we've parked on for a while. I think there's so much in Romans chapter 8, we may be here for a few weeks. But today, I want us, even though we read the whole chapter, I wanted you to to see the whole thing. Uh, But even though we read it all, we're going to look at just the very first verse. One verse. Romans chapter 8 and verse number 1. It's the verse that introduces the chapter. It is the key verse that describes everything else that Paul is going to talk about in the chapter. And uh, it's just where we need to park today. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Period. Stop. Romans chapter 8, verse number 1. We're going to look at two different points from this, and we're just going to let it kind of divide itself. First of all, I want us to talk about that first part. There is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation. Period. You know, I think every believer ought to mark that. If you don't have that marked in your Bibles, you ought to mark it. It's, uh, it's, 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 just, it's a, such an important verse. Take a pen or a pencil or a highlighter and, and mark it in some way. Circle it or underline it or highlight it or draw stars next to it or something. But every Christian ought to have that thing highlighted. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, if it's not the most important verse in the Bible, and it's dangerous to say a thing like that, but if it's not the most important verse of the Bible... And we reminded ourselves last week, didn't we, that uh, you really can't say that because my Bible tells me that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. All the verses are just as important. But nonetheless, even if it's not the most important, it is certainly one of the most important verses in the Bible. And uh, it it just sums up the entirety of the Bible message. Everything is in there. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Without question, it's the theme of chapter 8. But its import goes well beyond. It is a very concise and beautiful statement of the theme of the entire New Testament, even of the entire Bible. One commentator noted, and I quote, he said, Verse 1 is not only the theme of Romans 8, it is the theme of the entire Word of God, which is only another way of saying that it is the gospel. Indeed, it is the gospel's very heart. You know, some weeks ago we started this study in Romans, and we entitled the series, The Gospel, Power That Saves. And so the gospel is what we've been talking about all along. And we've seen throughout the time uh, Paul developing his theme. He stated his theme way back in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, when he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it. What's the it? The gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the gospel of Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so Paul stated it. Early on, and in the seven chapters that we've been studying of the book of Romans, we've seen him developing that gospel throughout. You remember he started out with a very dark truth. He started out with the dark truth that all are lost in sin, all are under the fierce wrath of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in righteousness. Chapter 1 and verse number 18 says... Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so he started with that darkness, that hard truth. And then he described the result of our lostness, that sin brings death. Not only physical death, but also spiritual death, eternal death, eternal separation from God in hell. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, we saw that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's amazing how... Some people put so little emphasis on the true state of their lost souls or the lost souls of those that they love. To be under the wrath of God, Paul taught, is cosmically terrible in the extreme. 
It's horrendous. It means eternity without God. It means hell. But Paul didn't stop there. The gospel, the word means good news. And that's not good news so far. That's pretty stinky stuff so far. But he he didn't stop there. He described the unbelievable solution that God has decreed for this problem. Romans chapter 5 and verse number 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's another one we should have marked in our Bibles. Another one that would be in the top ten. Great verses. Since the only payment for sin is the death of the sinner. The only way to save us from our sin was for someone else to die in our place. And that is exactly what happened. God sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, who did not and could not sin, to become sin in our place. To die for my sin in our place as our substitute. And as a result of that incredible sacrifice on the cross of of Calvary, we can now have salvation for our souls. Life for eternity. We learned that God took your sin and charged it to Jesus who died in your place on the cross. We learned that Jesus then rose again, having completely paid off your account and doing away with death. And now his righteousness is placed on your account. And we learned that now God sees you, Christian, as completely justified and perfectly righteous because you are. You no longer bear your sin. Christ destroyed it. You no longer possess your pitiful uh, attempts at holiness, for they died on the cross and were replaced with the holiness and righteousness of Christ, your substitute. You no longer need fear death, for Christ defeated and overcame it. That's the good news. That's the gospel that Paul has been talking about throughout the first seven chapters. And now we come to this chapter 8 and verse number 1, and we find this glorious summarization of the whole thing. All restated and summarized in these wonderful words. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. One commentator in, in, in trying to get his mind around this wrote this. He said the words, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, are the triumphant cry growing out of the book's first half. And so it is. We've seen some dark things in those first seven chapters, haven't we? But oh my, the triumphant cry that we see now that grows out of that. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So have you marked that in your Bible yet? If you haven't marked it in your Bible, you really need to mark that in your Bible. And perhaps this morning you might be asking, well, what does it mean? What does it mean when it says there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus? Well, let's just break it down a little bit. Let's just take a a look at some of those words. There is therefore... Let's look at that word. And, of course, we have to ask the question that we always ask when we see the word therefore there. And some of you may consider that trite whenever we say, when you see the word therefore in the Bible, you ask, what is the therefore there for? But it's extremely useful. It helps us to interpret Scripture rightly. What is the therefore therefore? What is he saying? Why? Why is there no condemnation? That's, that's what he's asking. And it's... Therefore, is there what he means by the word therefore is that it's because of all Paul has described in the previous seven chapters. Why is there no condemnation? Because of all that other stuff he talked about, that whole gospel that he's developed in Romans chapters one through seven. There is therefore, there is therefore now. Let's look at that word. Now. The gospel has so much implication for our futures, doesn't it? It's glorious to think about an eternity with Christ. He's got the word now there. Now. He's describing something that's in the present. He's describing something that's in the here and now. 
And what he's saying is, is the gospel not only has implication for our futures, but it changes everything in the present, the very moment a lost sinner kneels at the cross, confesses and repents of sin, and calls out to Jesus as his Savior, as her Savior at that moment to gain all the benefits of salvation. Now, what a great word. There is therefore now no condemnation. Let's look at that phrase. No condemnation. The wrath of God is totally and eternally and irrevocably satisfied with Christ's payment on Calvary. That's what that means. No condemnation. There is no further judgment for sin. He paid completely and forever the debt that you owed. Your slate is clean. What an amazing thought. Your slate is clean. Your balance is zero. With his cry of Tetelestai, it is finished on the cross of Calvary. He wiped it out. Every, every single bit. He paid it all. And you owe nothing further. Get this in your mind, Christian. You will never, never, never have to worry about judgment for sin. It's finished. And there is no further judgment to worry about. No condemnation. You underline that verse in your Bible yet? It's a good verse. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Think about how some others have described the glorious truth contained in verse number one. Uh, Walverd, uh, out of Dallas Theological Seminary, Walverd says this. He says it means that, uh, that they are justified. They, Christians, are justified, declared righteous, and therefore stand in his grace and not under his wrath and possess eternal life. Christ is the sphere of safety for all who are identified with him by faith. I like that. Christ is my sphere of safety. Because I am identified with him by faith. Another commentator, Moole, uh, wrote a very well-known commentary on Romans. He paraphrased the verse this way. He said, so no adverse sentences there now in view of this great fact of our redemption for those in Christ Jesus. No adverse sentence. No condemnation. Boyce, again, one of my favorites. He said this verse is uh, a statement of the believer's perfect and eternal security in Christ. And so we who are in Christ Jesus never need fear judgment for our sins again. Never, ever, ever. And by the way, that might be a better way to translate this because the word no right there, there is therefore now no condemnation. There is only one way to say no in English that I know of. No. In, in the Greek, there's actually a few different ways and some of them are much stronger. And this is one of them. This is a much stronger. It's, uh, you're not getting the full import of it when you just see there is therefore now no condemnation. When we say there will never, ever, ever be condemnation, that might be a little bit closer to what the Apostle Paul was actually saying right there. We are totally and completely and eternally secure in Him. Now, I probably ought to interject a word of caution here because I, I don't want us to be confused. There is a judgment coming for those of us who are saved. It's referred to in Scripture as the judgment seat of Christ. And we will, every single one of us. The Bible says it very plainly. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, every one of us. And we will give an account there of how we have served the Savior. And some of us are going to come away from the judgment seat of Christ rewarded for serving Christ well, and some are going to come away from the judgment seat of Christ, I believe, weeping over lost opportunity. But the thing that's important for us to understand is that judgment, which is for Christians, is not about sin. It is about our service, 
our service for the Savior. So let me say it again. We are who are in Christ Jesus. Never need fear judgment for our sins. Again, never, ever, because there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We're safe in him. We're secure in him. We're justified in Christ. Jesus said the same thing, didn't he? John recorded it for us in John chapter 5 and verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life, shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Oh, I believe every Christian ought to look with reverent awe on this verse. I believe every one of us ought to never stop living in it and rejoicing in it and wondering about it and weeping over it. There is therefore now no condemnation to them. Who are in Christ Jesus. We ought to read it. We ought to memorize it. We ought to meditate on it. We ought to underline it and circle it and highlight it in every Bible we own. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. All my iniquities on him were laid. He nailed them all to the tree. Jesus, the debt of my sin, fully paid. He paid the ransom for me. So no condemnation, period. We could stop right there. But the verse doesn't stop right there. The verse has something else to say. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's talk about that for just a moment. To those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, just as we cannot emphasize the glorious truth of those words, no condemnation enough, we can't. We could talk about it forever. So, too, we dare not emphasize, we dare not avoid emphasizing The terrible warning implied in those other words. In Christ. In Christ. You see, what Paul is saying here is the gospel, the promises of the gospel is not for everybody. It's only for some. It's only for those in a particular group. And they are the ones who are described here as the ones who are in Christ. And Paul was saying here that our union with Christ, I think we've talked about this a little bit in the previous chapters, our union with Christ, that's key to the whole thing. It's the key to the gospel. It's a key to everything he has been teaching. Let me quote again from my favorite commentator. He says, this is terribly important and perhaps the most critical doctrine of salvation in Paul's writings. Paul uses the phrases in Christ, in Christ Jesus, and in him, or their equivalents, 164 times in his writings. We can hardly emphasize this enough. In Christ. We died with him and were buried with him and will rise with him. We saw that in chapter 6 and we are now in him, united to and with him. And I know it's a difficult concept. I see some perplexed looks. It's hard for us to get our brain around that. What does that mean to be in Christ? And the, the difficulty of it can be seen, I suppose, by the fact the Bible goes to such lengths to try to illustrate it to us. There's all kinds of illustrations to try to help us get our mind around what he's talking about here when he talks about our union with Christ, what it means to be in Christ. For example, Jesus himself illustrated it in John chapter 15 and verse 5 when he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. And if we think about that picture, we see that it describes our union with Christ. He is the vine, we are the branches. The branch can't live apart from the vine. And the importance placed on that union with Christ can be seen in Jesus' words when he said, without me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Paul used several illustrations to try and explain what it means to be in Christ. He, he used the illustration of a building. 
a building in Ephesians chapter 2, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. All kinds of different parts to a building, but it's one building. It's an illustration of what it means to be in union with Christ, united with Christ, in Christ. Paul also used the illustration of a body. Ephesians chapter 1, he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Same illustration in Colossians 1.18, he is the head of the body. The church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. And Paul used that illustration in other places. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there's a lengthy passage there describing that. All of us are parts of the body and yet one body. We think about our body and it has all kinds of different parts, but they're all one body. We're united with Christ. We're in union with him. Uh, Paul also used the illustration of a marriage. He gave all kinds of instruction regarding the home and the family and marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. And at the very conclusion of that chapter, he says in verse number 32, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. When two become one in marriage, it is a picture, it is an illustration of the union that we have with Christ. That is why, by the way, it is such a heinous and terrible thing that our culture is trying to redefine marriage. Because it has meaning. It has theological meaning all the way back to the very beginning of creation. But it pictures for us what it means to be in Christ. Now let's pause here just for a moment to remind ourselves about something about this. This little phrase, in Christ. How do we, how does it come to be? Is there something we do? Is there some work we perform? How do I get to be in Christ? Do I obey the Ten Commandments? Am I a good person? Do I give a lot of money to the church? How do I come to be in Christ? And, and of course, anyone who's listened to uh, the preaching of this church and, and, and has studied along with us, the Bible knows that we don't believe that at all. We believe it is entirely a work of God's grace. Paul has built upon that. The just shall live by faith. He's built upon that throughout the entire thing. We can do nothing to get in Christ, for it is God's grace at work through and through. And and for that reason, we have to discuss something about Romans chapter 8 and verse number 1, and that is a little textual difficulty that we have here in Romans chapter 8 and verse number 1. You see, if we don't discuss this, it could lead us to believe differently. It could lead us to believe that maybe there is some way I need to walk, a certain way that I need to behave in order to be in Christ. If you're holding a new King James Bible or a King James Bible, it says there the second half, which we haven't even touched on. The second half of verse number one says, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. If you're holding some of the other Bibles, you may see that that's not even there. And you may have wondered if I you know, was having a little dyslexia or something when I was reading up here because you didn't see that in your copy of the scripture. Bible scholars are almost universally unanimous that that particular phrase should not be there. There is manuscript support for it, but there is stronger manuscript support against it. It's generally thought that it is a copious error. If you look down at verse number four, look at verse number four, especially the last part of verse number four. Notice what it says. It says, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Identical. And so the general consensus among Bible scholars is that some copyist was copying and 
He did what we've all done from time to time. As you're going from place to place and moving from here to there, your eye jumps. And he grabbed the last part of verse number four and tacked it onto the end of verse number one. And so it is probable that it should not be there. And, and if we think about it, it changes the entire meaning of the verse, the simplicity of Paul's wonderful statement. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And then there's this other thing. Wait a minute. They have to walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. It, it, it changes the entire meaning. And so we need to recognize that that is there. Nothing could be further from the truth. No condemnation is entirely a work of God's grace. None of it is due to our works. And it's good for us to remember, is it not, that there's no such thing as a perfect translation of Scripture. None of them. Every English Bible that has ever existed is a translation of God's Word, which originally was given in Hebrew and in Greek. And the doctrines of infallibility and inerrancy and, 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 and perfection that we, we apply to God's Word is applied to God's Word in the original. There's no error there. However, the translations that we have from those original manuscripts are not always so perfect. And it's not just that sometimes a copyist made an error. Sometimes it's just not possible to translate from one language to another clearly and perfectly. And so people take tries and stabs at it, and that's why some of the different translations might say something just differently. But it doesn't mean you have reason to distrust your Bible. You don't don't have reason for that. God has so preserved his word, even in translation, that there is not a single doctrine of the faith that is affected. Every little issue like this is incidental, doesn't affect the truth of God's word at all. And so you can read it, you can believe it, you can trust it, and don't get bent out of shape by little things like that. But all that being said, the last part of verse number one ought not to be there. Verse number one should simply say, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, period. So let's get back to that text. And let's make sure we understand what he's saying. See, we could spend an awful lot of time talking about what Paul means when he's talking about this concept of union with Christ, when he's talking about our being in Christ, or we could, we could boil it all down and we could be really simple. Would you rather that we do that? Let's boil it all down and be really simple. What the Apostle Paul is saying here is that there are those who will never need face condemnation for their sins because they are saved. And there are those who must face condemnation for their sins for they are lost. That's what he's saying. If we're just going to be as simple as we can be. The implication is so clear. If you are not in Christ, you're lost. You're perishing. You're dying. You're hopeless. You're undone. You're soon to be damned eternally. That's what he's saying. Only those who are in Christ have hope. The assurance, the glorious promise that their sins are gone. And gone forever. And that they will never face judgment for them again. And so, the question that we must ask this morning is this, my friend. Are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Jonathan Edwards is widely regarded as the greatest theologian that America has ever produced. I've been trying to get Jonathan to come and preach for us on Old Fashioned Sunday, but I don't know if he's going to come or not. But Edwards preached a sermon entitled, his most famous sermon, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And in that sermon, he described the hopelessness of the soul that is not in Christ. And here's what he said, among other things. 
He said, unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a rotten covering. And there are innumerable places in this covering so weak that they will not bear their weight. And these places are not seen. The arrows of death fly unseen at noonday. And the sharpest sight cannot discern them. (laughs) Are you in Christ? He's saying it's dangerous not to be. Are you in Christ? I've mentioned a couple times that I've been working recently on a little booklet talking about some of the things I've been learning in the last few months uh, after losing Beth. And in that book, I wrote that I've learned or at least been reminded that things can change in an instant. And, of course, anybody who's heard me preach knows I believe that. Anybody who's heard me preach, or really anybody preach from this pulpit, knows that we believe and always have. We warn people and plead with people in nearly every sermon. You don't know whether you have tomorrow. And you need to trust Christ now, because you may not walk out of this place without going out into eternity. On September 18, 2015, God drove home to me a truth I've preached for decades. You have no promise for tomorrow. You could draw your last breath in the next minute. You might think it's ridiculous. Maybe you ought to read the news. Maybe you ought to watch what's going on in our world. You could find yourself in the next moment, either in heaven or in hell. And at that point, you can't choose because you already will have. Are you in Christ? If not, I implore you to trust Christ today. Are you in Christ? See your danger. Will you not see it? Are you in Christ? You see, if not, you have no future. You have no tomorrow. You are lost. You are dying. You are damned. You are without the slightest of hopes. You are sinking beneath the waves and drowning forever. You are already burning in the fires of hell and just don't know it yet. You are a dead man walking if you are not in Christ. Or a dead woman walking, ladies. You don't get off of that either. Are you in Christ? But if you are, if you are in Christ, all fear is gone. You have only hope, for your future is secure in Him. You are saved eternally, and nobody can take that away. Even sin, that enemy that Satan throws in your faith as a reminder constantly, can't undo what Christ did for you on the cross because He destroyed it there. He killed it there. Praise God. Have you circled that verse in your Bible yet? Praise God. Think about it. Hallelujah. Glory to God in the highest. To Him, to God, be the glory. Great things He hath done. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord.